So for a brain dead donor, they are pronounced dead, but their heart is still beating. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of people aren't aware that that can actually happen. So their heart is allowed to beat to perfuse those organs right until they are ready to clamp the aorta off and restrict the blood flow. And once they get to that point, they'll make sure everyone's ready at the same time, because once that happens, then you're kind of on the time crunch. That's when the clock starts to actually get those organs out and into the recipient. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rapid Response RN podcast. I have with me today a really special guest. This is Sean. He is a nurse that works with organ procurement companies and helps patients that are at the end of their life be able to donate their organs. And then on the flip side, helps patients receive organs and get their life back. So it's really cool the work that he gets to do. And Sean is also a podcaster, a fellow nurse podcaster. Yeah. So I'm stoked to have him on the show. Sean, welcome to the Rap Response Art and Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So there's a lot to talk about today. I did not know very much at all about organ procurement whenever I became a nurse, like even graduated nursing school, I knew very little. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking some stuff with you. But before we dive into the work you're doing every day, can you just talk about like how you became a nurse? Like what drew you to nursing? What types of nursing roles have you had? So I actually, you know, I went to college and I originally went for my biology degree. My original plan was to go to medical school, but I have a lot of doctors in my family. So I, I kind of saw you know, the debt and everything that they went into. So I actually didn't know I wanted to go into nursing until the last semester of college. And my parents, my dad was a, a dentist and he said like all of his patients who are nurses absolutely love it because they only work three days a week. You know, they get paid pretty well. So that's kind of what sparks me going to nursing school. And then I found out I was actually pretty good at it. <laughs> so yeah, I went to nursing school, got a 4.0 and um, thought I was going to do the CRNA thing. And um, I got into my first ICU role right out of uh, nursing school place, went to a uh, level one trauma hospital in their CVICU and transplant ICU and uh, became charged there, an educator and um, started actually working with organ donors. I was first made aware of organ donation because I had a patient who became an organ donor. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Like we had two nurses come in and basically turn the patient all the way around from B 
being pronounced brain dead to now having great PO2s, having a heart that's functioning perfectly, you know, having liver enzymes going down, kidney function going up. And this, this person became a full donor. And I got a letter a couple of weeks later basically saying where all these organs went. I just wanted to pause to emphasize how cool this is. So Sean goes into the cardiac ICU with a plan to be a CRNA which a lot of cardiac ICU nurses do. But then he gets to care for a patient that was able to donate their organs. And through watching the ordination team come in and completely optimize his patient's organs, get them ready for transplant, and then to get that letter showing all the patients that got a second chance at life because of the work that he did, it totally changed the trajectory of his career. And now he does this full-time. Pretty cool. And... Yeah, from there, I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. And that's why I went into the transplant ICU because I wanted to see the other side of it. And I did. And I uh, specialized in liver transplants, lung transplants, and kidney transplants. And um, then went from there. So then uh, got involved with the organ procurement organization, became a coordinator there and an educator, and then later on a clinical practice specialist. So... That's basically where I am now. And there's a podcast mixed in there somewhere as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I started doing podcasting a long time ago. It's just, it all sprouted from me feeling so unprepared coming out of nursing school and going into the ICU and basically feeling like nursing school meant nothing <laughs> going into the ICU and now having to relearn all this stuff. And I just want to be able to have that that uh, education out there for people, especially new grads, is kind of what I focus towards. And um, I don't know if, if anyone is uh, interested, but my uh, TikTok account also hit 30,000 subscribers today. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank so you awesome. so much. So I do the same thing on there too. A lot of videos and education. Yeah. It's definitely a niche in nursing that I didn't ever see myself doing when I started as a nurse. Social media wasn't even a thing whenever I started as a nurse. Never thought I'd be on social media, but right, exactly. you definitely have the opportunity to reach way more nurses than you ever could in your own hospital, in your own town, whenever you are sharing your heart and your brain oh, yeah. with the world through social media. So thank you for what you're doing, how you're giving back to the profession. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'd love to just start from the beginning. Like, can you walk us through the process of whenever... A patient is declared brain dead and the family decides that they want to donate or the patient has already decided they want to donate the organs. And when they actually, those organs are actually leaving the helipad. It's a lot. It's even, it's even before, you know, the pronouncement. So it actually starts with the nurse or even the doctor uh, calling into the hotline and uh, just making the organization aware that this patient is out there. So um, it kind of depends on the triggers for that. OPO or organ procurement organization. Uh, usually it's something like a GCS less than five or a, uh, a patient who's on the ventilator and not expected to survive. So that's usually the triggers that people have to actually come in and evaluate the patient. So then we get to either pronouncement of brain death or withdrawal of care on someone who is not brain dead because you can actually do organ donation on someone who is not brain dead. And uh, that's called DCD donation or donation after circulatory death or cardiac death, whichever one you choose to uh, label it as. And then once we get pronouncement or families talking about withdrawing care, 
the organization looks to see if the patient is registered as an organ donor. So, and if they're not, then the family will be approached and asked um, if that is something that their loved one would have wanted or, you know, and then they, they might authorize for them. And if, if they say no, then it's something that we uh, respect, you know, the organization respects that and there's no, no guilt felt or anything like that. So the main thing is respecting what this person's last wish was. And um, that is the main thing, you know, it's um, if someone has signed up as an organ donor or their family knew that that is something that they would want to do, it's our job and it's the nurse's job, the whole healthcare team's job to ensure that that is um, something that we can do for them and make sure that happens. So once we get, once the uh, consent is signed, then there will be a period of organ optimization. So this is like one to three days. Sometimes there could be as fast as even four hours until you go into the OR or as long as five, six days, just depending on family timelines and any issues needed for organ optimization. There are times when we'll work on the heart for days and days just to get it back to an EF that's manageable and transplantable. Uh, so during that time, it's, it's just a bunch of orders, bunch of labs. I'm sure anyone who's worked with a, an organ donor knows it's it can be intense. And um, a lot of times it's a one-to-one -one patient. And honestly, they should be just for the um, the work that needs to be done entail stuff like going to cath lab, going to CT, getting swans placed, liver biopsies. There's a whole bunch of procedures that might have to be done in order for these organs to be optimized. And then uh, once they're optimized and at a good spot, uh, they're allocated out to the different transplant centers. And these can, they're, they're usually prioritized closest, but can go out, you know, states and states away. So it's basically going down the match list and it's depending on the organ, there's different ways that they're classified and using that will go down the list and um, it is basically offering out the organ to the different transplant centers and they can accept or deny based on, you know, size or if they, they see anything um, like serologies, any kind of diseases that would not fit with their recipient, then they might pass it up. But once the organs that are being offered out are placed, then an OR set is mutually agreed upon between all the teams. And I mean, there's times when there's like three or four teams in the same OR and it entails a lot of coordination and a lot of um, bargaining. <laughs> so who actually does that work? Who actually coordinates all these different hospitals? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So the coordinators will do that. There's, uh, I mean, it's different. Every um, OPO is different in how they um, do their things. Uh, it's still a very like up and coming process and everybody's testing out new and different ways. There are some people that do fully remote allocation where they're at home and all they do is allocate organs while there's coordinators on site that do the management. But there are some organizations like the one that, you know, I work with that the coordinators that are on site will do some of the organ allocations as well as optimize the organs and do the uh, clinical management as well. I just want to pause again and make sure you guys are catching this. This is a role that when I started my career, I did not even know existed for nurses. So Sean has had the training and the experience to know how to come in and help optimize this patient's organs to get them the best state possible, the best functioning possible for the next patient that needs them. So his understanding of pathophysiology and pharmacology and lab values has to be tip top. 
And then he plays such a vital role, not only in the patient, but also in coordinating this whole team to arrive at around the same time to be ready to do the organ retrieval. What a cool niche in nursing. And I think it's just really awesome the role that nurses can play in such an important process. So I asked Sean, like, how do you do that? Do you just pick a time and tell everybody, all right, guys, let's meet up here at three o'clock? That's exactly how it is. Or uh, there's a lot of teams that, you know, they'll say like, oh, I don't want to go until this time and I can't go before this time. And it, you have to think about it because the surgeon that's coming to take out the organ from the donor is usually the one who's going to be placing it into the recipient. Most times uh, there's sometimes where it's like a team and there will be a doctor who or a surgeon that will take it out and then another surgeon and team of surgeons that will be putting it in. But especially for like heart transplants, they have to get the recipient ready. So this isn't something that they're going to want to do in the middle of the night. So a lot of times we see that they would like for the donor OR to be in the morning so that the recipient OR could be in like in the middle of the day towards like afternoon. But there are times in the OR where, you know, the surgeon might see the organ and say, you know, um, actually this isn't going to work out for us. And then it has to be reallocated in the OR which can lead to a delay in like cross clamp and, and all of that. But the OR itself is pretty straightforward. I just wanted to interject again here because this actually happens more often than you think. Uh, when I worked cardiac IC, we call this a dry run where the patient who needs an organ gets the best phone call ever. Hey, we have an organ for you coming into the hospital. They come in at all hours of the day and night. We prep them for surgery, you know, draw labs, you know, do the hippoclins or chlorhexidine bath. Sometimes even went back to the OR only to find out that the organ was not a good fit for them. And so they have to go home without an organ. So it's kind of an emotional roller coaster. And they're prepared for it. They're told this could happen to have gotten the best call. You're getting an organ. And then to find out, no, you actually are not. You have to go home and wait some more. So I just wanted to interject so you all know this happens in my experience, really often. So let's say you have a patient who is brain dead. All the organs are optimized. Mm -hmm. The team is coming at 10 a.m. The patient gets to the OR. Then what happens? So the patient gets to the OR. Then there is a timeout that's done. We do any family requests that are mentioned during the consent, like prayers. A lot of the times it's, uh, it's music to be played in the OR during the recovery. And then there's a timeout that basically goes over, you know, all the organs that are going to be procured, any restrictions, and then any uh, diseases that were found during the workup, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. And then once that's done, it begins. Uh, so there's, like I said, there could be three to four teams and they are all around the operating table at the same time. Thoracic surgeons here, you know, more towards the head of the table, the bottom, but they're all cutting at the same time. So for a brain dead donor, they are pronounced dead, uh, but their heart is still beating. I think that's a lot of, a lot of people aren't aware that that can actually happen. So their heart is allowed to beat to perfuse those organs right until they are ready to cross clamp or basically clamp the aorta off and restrict the blood flow. And once they get to that point, they'll make sure everyone's ready at the same time because once that happens, then you're kind of on the time crunch. That's when the clock starts to actually get those organs out and into the recipient. So the cross-plant and then some preservative solutions are flushed through the donor and it helps 
pool the donor and preserve with the preservatives that they have in there. And then one by one, the organs will come out. It's usually heart first, then lungs, then liver, and then kidneys, pancreas kind of along the same time. And they're sent to the back table. They are observed and examined uh, to make sure there isn't anything that they didn't see while um, in situ. And then they'll get the official acceptance and start uh, packaging it up to take it back home. So it kind of just depends. There's a lot of times when we do these at transplant centers where they'll actually just take it down to the OR where the recipient's waiting. Or like you said, they'll take it up to a helipad. We'll drive it to the airport where we have a jet on standby where we'll take it, you know, states away. And for a lot of these organs, like especially for heart and lungs, we're looking at a max like four to six hours outside the body before they need to be transplanted. For a liver, it's about six to eight. I would say more towards the six hour mark. And then kidneys are kind of special because they can be outside the body for a lot longer. That's crazy. Can you just repeat that again? How long is the heart good or like preservable outside of a human body? Yeah, it's about four hours That's on ice. That's crazy. So preferably less. Less is best, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. But that's like the the max. Yeah, makes sense. Right. But there's even recently we started using uh, pumps. Like I forgot what they call them, but basically pumps that will allow the heart to actually pump and circulate blood throughout its system, which will increase how long it can be outside of the body and improves the function once it's back inside the donor. So there's stuff like that for heart, for lungs, for kidneys, and for the liver. So all these things exist for it. So you talked about what happens for patients who are brain dead, but how about for patients who actually pass and then they go retrieve the organs? How is that process different? It's kind of the same process. We get the consent and then the workup is done. But so since the patient has not been pronounced brain dead, the OPO cannot actually give orders Uh, for that, for the management of that patient. So the patient stays under the management of the uh, hospital care team and the OPO just provides recommended orders that would be beneficial to organ optimization. But once you get to the OR, it's kind of like you're withdrawing care, but instead of in the ICU room, it's in the OR. And in a lot of places, family is allowed to be in the OR, either in bunny suits or special scrubs or something like that. And they're allowed to like hold the patient's hand or, um, you know, be at the head of the bed. And so the patient is actually extubated in the OR. So then the team will wait for the patient to pass naturally. And since the heart will be stopped at that point, then it'll start what's called warm ischemic time. So with brain dead donors, you're able to cut down until you're at the organ before you cross clamp the aorta and stop the heart. But with DCD donors, you can't do that. So once the heart stops and the patient is officially pronounced, there's usually a waiting period to make sure there's no auto-resuscitation and then the procurement starts. But those organs aren't cold like they are in a brain-dead donor, so you have less time. So it's a lot more sensitive in the timing. If the patient doesn't expire, usually within 20 to 40 minutes, uh, usually the liver teams aren't um, as accepting. So it takes a lot of analysis on the side of the OPO to see if uh, this is a patient that would be a candidate for DCD if it looks like they would pass that time period. So the likelihood of organs being salvageable goes down the longer that it takes for the patient to pass after extubation. Am I understanding that correct? Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's correct. 
So we've talked a lot about like the science behind it and like kind of how the process goes. What I'd love to hear about is like, what is the nurse's role in all of this? And like maybe some of the emotional challenges and things like that that you have encountered in this role, both when you were a cardiac ICU nurse, but then also in your role now. The nurse is is very important in this role, mainly in actually referring the patients to the OPO is like one of the most important things you can do because no one knows that the patient's a donor until they get referred. You know, that's a common misconception. Like nobody has any idea. There's no way for the hospital team to know anything like that. So it's very important to refer because you never know what this patient's last wishes were. You know, there's sometimes when families will bring it up and then that spurs the referral. But, you know, we have a lot of people that come in who maybe don't have the the family support or don't have the family at their bedside. And it's important for the care team to recognize that this could be a potential. And, you know, once you see someone as a, a registered donor, you really want to do everything you can to honor that last wish. So referral is a, is a big part of the nurse's job in organ donation. So do you have any like memorable stories or experiences from whenever you were a bedside nurse or even now in your current role that have really stuck with you and, and been very impactful in your, your career? Yeah, I mean, that, that, first, um, that first donor that I had, it was, like I said, that one was very impactful for me. I had no idea what organ donation was. I was still, I think I was a nurse for maybe three or four months off of orientation. And my charge nurse told me that uh, the, uh, the organ donation people are coming for your patient. I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, how does that work? And they came. And like I said, I work really closely with this guy now who came and optimized this patient. I was like, the patient was not satting well at all. And they came in and they did these special maneuvers. And now the lungs have been recruited. You know, they're opened up and we're satting great. And now the lungs are possibly going to be transplanted. And give somebody their life back. So that was just crazy to me. And the fact that these two people, one was a nurse, you know, one of the coordinators was a nurse and the other one was an EMT. And these two people came in and optimized this patient for transplant and everything went. And I got this letter saying, you know, this dad can be with his family for so much longer because of the work that you helped with. And so that is just crazy. And then when I went into the transplant ICU, just seeing these recipients come in on oxygen with the expectation of living maybe six more months before they couldn't handle it anymore. And then walking out of the hospital with no oxygen, a brand new life, and then coming back and then not even recognizing the person and saying like, hey, you, you took care of me when I got my lung transplant. And I just wanted to say thank you. It's just, it's insane. It definitely brings like the humanity back to it. Organ donation, like the first part of this podcast episode is very sciencey and almost like sci fi a little bit, honestly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But like when you take it full circle and think about like the end part where these organs are going, they're going to that dad that gets to spend mm -hmm. more time with his kids. They're going to that teenager that gets to go to college. Like that part of it, I actually have chills right now just like thinking about how amazing and beautiful that process is. Oh, yeah. Can I share with you my most impactful story from a patient that donated his organs? Yes, please. So, I worked cardiac ICU, and this patient, he was young-ish. He was like late 40s, early 50s, and he did not live in Florida where I live now. He lived somewhere up north. He had a dream that he died, and it was so impactful to him that he quit his job 
and moved to Florida to be close to his family, to be close to his mom and his sisters. And everyone's like, what are you doing quitting your job? You're not, you're not even close to retirement. He's like, well, I, I dreamed that I died and I, I'm going to die soon. And so I need to be close to my family for my final weeks, months. I don't know how long I have, but I don't want to just keep working my life where I'm with my family. And they all kind of thought he was crazy, but like, all right, I mean, welcome to Florida. So he like took his mom to Paris and hung out with his sisters and his nieces and nephews, like just lived his life. Yeah. And I don't know how long that went on for a couple months. And then he was at the gym and had chest pain. This is a healthy dude. Like he's working out at the gym, had chest pain, called all his family. Hey guys, it's happening. I love you. I've, I've loved this time we've had together. They're like, get off the phone with me and call 911. Oh, no. And so ultimately calls 911. He had a huge aorta dissection. So they're able to take him to the OR. Mm-hmm. They repair the aorta. But he must have like showered clot or something on the table because he started right, out I'm really in. bad. And so I was his nurse post-op. And when we went to wake him up, he had, I mean, he was paralyzed and couldn't, like he was brain dead, basically. He was, he was not responding at all, had no responses. And taking him to CAT scan and confirm right. that. And so it was pretty soon after that we were like, pronouncing him brain dead. And the family immediately, as soon as we told them the bad news, immediately they said, he wants to be an organ donor. He already told us. He already told us, it's on his driver's license, he wants to be an organ donor. Can we please make that happen? Mm-hmm. And because he was so healthy before this dissection, he had very good organs that were able to be donated. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize at the time how long that process is from the moment they say yes to organ donation till we actually are able to give the organs away. Right. But because we had all that time, because it took time, it actually gave the family time to kind of work through this and prepare themselves for it. I thought that they would be like, can we just get this over with kind of thing? They weren't. They were just happy to have the time with him to hold his hand, even though he was brain dead, and to talk with him. They, these people were so beautiful. They wrote a letter to every single recipient. We planned to take both kidneys, both lungs, heart. We, we plan to take all these. So they wrote a letter to every single one of those recipients and brought them in and we like packaged them up together with a little gift. And then the day that we took him back to the OR, I was with them and we actually went outside and we watched the helicopters like leave off the helipad, like with tears in our eyes, watching the organs kind of fly off to their next owner. Oh, yeah. Anyways, that was a couple days process and I and I got to be there for all of those days and then at at the end of it. And it's a crazy story. I still don't understand how all that works, how he had this dream that he was so convinced he was going to die. And then he actually did pass. And that his family was, I think for them, it was very like, oh, okay, we're definitely doing it. It was no question in their mind. Like a lot of families have that question. There was no question because he had already made it very clear what his wishes were. Right. But to just walk with them through that process. And I feel like I shifted from being not just his nurse, but now I am their nurse as well <laughs> to guide them through right. this whole process. Oh, yeah. But just like you described, the OPO nurse came in and he basically just sat next to me for days and we like reviewed labs and name. drew blood work and added more electrolytes and we're tweaking the ventilator. It was a lot of work to get him ready for the OR. But then once the OPO nurse was like, all right, it's time, we took him back to the OR and then it was actually very fast until everything was uh, everything was done. Uh-huh. But um, yeah. All of the organs that you can donate, he was able to donate. No, that's awesome. Even his heart, even with the aorta dissection, even his heart was something that was donatable. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. so lots of people got their life back 
because of his life. So it was so it was good. very impactful for me as a nurse, and I learned I learned so much through the process. So my question for you is, what do you want nurses to know about organ donation? Like, because people ask them questions about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe families might ask them questions. What are some of the things that you feel like people don't know that they need to know about how the whole process works? I think one of the main things, and this is something for nurses to educate themselves on, even me when I was, you know, in doing CVICU and transplant ICU and all that, I felt like I had a good understanding of what a a potential donor would look like. You know, I'd be like, oh, you know, they wouldn't be able to to donate anything. And and I think a lot of people think like that. So like, what are some examples of conditions that you, people often think are not going to be candidates? Right. Well, just like you said, the aortic dissection, a lot of people think like, oh, you know, they went back for heart surgery. Um, they came back, they have an AKI and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, they still have a liver. You know, there's that liver is somebody's life or maybe they're in liver failure, but their kidneys are still working. Those kidneys, that's two lives that are improved. And people think that because he said he's he's got cirrhosis and everything it's like oh nothing's going to be good but you should let the opo kind of look into that because things are changing constantly in organ donation people are taking you know sicker organs that can be optimized on the back end so much better than they could you know even a year ago so it's always worth referring but yeah other than that i think just the registered donor kind of thing. I know that y'all know in the hospital, y'all have no idea if a patient is a registered donor or not. Y'all don't have any access to that. You know, you have to have a special privilege to actually get in and look and see if a patient is a registered donor. So so you're saying asking the family is not enough? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, you can ask the family and it's, if they say yes, and you know, that's, that's even the better. But that registration of organ donation is almost like a, um, it's a legal binding contract, basically, you know, saying that, you know, they want to be a organ donor. So there's that. And, you know, families sometimes contest that, but you just have to remind them, like, this is something that your loved one signed up for. And, you know, maybe they didn't have that discussion beforehand. And maybe it's something that this person secretly wanted to do or secretly had a passion for. Um, It was just never relayed to them. And there's a whole bunch of cultural things that come into it as well. And we get so many in-services about the different cultures and how like pretty much, you know, most of them accept organ donation in some form or fashion. So that's always a, um, a contention that people come, come up with. But other than that, I think the main thing is, you know, a lot of people think that where the organ donor is, is where those organs are going to be transplanted. But I've seen them go across the country these lists, they are so long. And some of these people have been waiting for years and years and years, even for kidneys, which, you know, each person has two kidneys. So for a donor, that's two people. So you think the kidney list wouldn't be as large as it is, but it is, you know, even though each donor is able to usually give two, you know, there's exceptions. How about like misconceptions from families? Like whenever you've had to approach families and they are concerned about their loved one being an organ donor, what are their misconceptions that you've had to debunk or, you know, teach about? A lot of the time it's timeline and they're thinking that if they accept organ donation, then we have to go right now. 
And a lot of them are relieved to, to know that it can be one to three days or, you know, even up to five days because it gives them that much more time with their loved one. They can do preparations. They can do things, memory things that they maybe didn't think of before. We, we love to record the heart, give them that, that sound file or give them the EKG strip, you know, stuff like that. But on the, the other side of it, we can also, if it's appropriate, it could be something that might have to go more rapidly. And we can offer that if the family's having issues with timing and stuff like that. It can't be offered 100% of the time just because of other factors, but it's something that we try to do. And then the thought that, you know, they can't really do anything when, when the patient goes to the OR, but we have so many times where we have priests come in, do prayer before the OR starts. Or like I said, we have music playing, or sometimes we even had um, some of their favorite shows playing in the background. So... You know, there's a lot of things that we try to do to honor the donor and the family. And um, I think that's a misconception that a lot of families have. And a lot of families have never had any kind of organ donation experience. Like this might be the first time that they're really hearing about it. It's a lot. It's we basically have to educate them on the whole process and go from there. And of course, there's a lot of questions about the process, but there's a very extensive explanation before consent. I've had a couple of families mentioned that they're concerned that their loved one is an organ donor and that we're not going to try to save them because they're an organ donor. Mm-hmm. We just want to get, we're just going to let them die so we can get their organs. And so I've had to kind of explain that that's not how it works at all, that we always honor patients' wishes. And if their wish is to be right. rescued and resuscitated, we are going to do that. And if that is unsuccessful, then they're... Mm-hmm. Like their second wish is also to be an organ donor, and then we would work towards that goal. But never does that goal trump our our goal right. of saving the patient's life if that's what they want. And I've, I've heard that a couple of times. You know, no one in the healthcare team actually knows if the patient's an organ donor or not. So, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're like blinded to it. We're just here to take care of you and honor your wishes, whatever those are, right? Right. What would you advise nurses when it comes to talking with the family about the loved one in the bed? and their candidacy for organ donation. What wisdom or advice would you share about that? (laughs) That is also going to differ from OPO to OPO. The one that I work with, it specifically asks that uh, no mention of organ donation is done unless the family brings it up because OPOs usually employ people that are specialized in making these conversations. And there's like specific wording of things just to make sure that there's no kind of misunderstanding or misconception whenever that comes about because you can lose the family's trust if just one word is off. So like I said, it goes from OPO to OPO. Some OPOs are fine and, uh, you know, that goes all the way up to doctors. They have to be very careful when mentioning organ donation. Usually when family asks like, okay, what's next? You know, the then usually the care team will say, you know, there's another member of the care team that would like to speak to you about, you know, the next steps. And then it goes from there. So I would say, um, you know, follow your hospital's policy on that. And, you know, of course, if the family brings it up, I would refer them to the OPO that works with the hospital, unless you feel confident, you know, saying anything. But, you know, if you're, if you're new to it as well, a lot of the times it's really easy to say the wrong thing or say something that you thought was true, but it's actually not true. And then there's like a lot of backpedaling when you get to the actual conversation. So the main thing that nurses can do is be there for them emotionally and just know the resources they have in terms of the OPO and the hospital policy and all that. I mean, from what I've read, whenever 
the care team approaches the family versus whenever the OPO approaches the family, the success rate of getting a consent is much greater when the OPO does the approach than whenever the bedside team does. Mm -hmm. And you think like, really? Don't they trust the bedside team where they would be more likely to? And it's not that case, not that way at all. Like the studies have shown that. And so my perspective is if y'all are going to be more successful and allowing other people to get their life back from these organs, I would much rather just defer to you and just be tactful in the way that I kind of dance around the subject until you get there, Uh knowing that it's the best chance for this patient to be able to actually donate their organs. Right. It's definitely a difficult subject to broach, period. Even after the family has said yes, just how you talk about that is very, very difficult. You have to use a lot of wisdom and discretion in, in the way you talk about things. Exactly. Have you been a part of any like walk of honor or I don't know what you call it in your facilities, but do you guys do that whenever the patient goes back to the OR? Oh, yeah. It's a it's usually a hospital led directive. So each hospital has their own forms of honor walks. And I've been with a ton of them, to be honest, and it's very hard. And some of them are huge. And I remember one where the whole parking lot outside of the hospital was filled with like family members, friends and, and everything. And they walked the donor past the window on the way to the OR and stopped and let everybody wave uh, to them before they went back. And it's, it's an amazing thing. And it's very hard. I have to look at the ground whenever we're walking with those, because it's just so hard to process emotionally. And it's something you kind of have to remove yourself from as a coordinator because, you know, you're trying to do a specific job and it's just hard to not get emotional in those times because you, you see how much support and love this person had and, and how proud everyone is of this person for giving these gifts up for potential recipients. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, when someone donates their organs, a lot of facilities have some sort of like ceremony in place where they line the halls with all the staff that have cared for this patient. And like you said, maybe some family members or members of community or people that love this this patient. And as the patient goes by, they all just kind of like pay honor to the beautiful gift that they are about to give to so many people. Also very heavy because we know what's about to happen. They're about to, mm-hmm. their heart is about to stop, right? That's what's about to happen. But at the same time, when that happens, it allows for more people to get their life back. And that is very beautiful. I've been a part of, I mean, dozens and dozens of these in my facility. Right. And it really is. I mean, I cry every time, even if it's a patient that I hadn't personally cared right. for, just seeing the family and oh, yeah. how proud they are of their loved one. That's really impactful. Seeing the tears in the eyes of my coworkers who have really like, you know, poured their heart into caring for this patient. Oh, yeah. And then just thinking about, these people I don't even know that are about to get an organ. All of that is very emotional. Right. And I can see how you'd want to look down because that's a lot to take in. You know, it's a lot. And if you do this day in and day out, that's that's heavy. But it's also so, it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's a I lot. I think some of my favorite ones are the veterans whenever they donate the organs. Oh, yeah. Because oftentimes, like the local military, whatever branch they were in, they will send delegates to the hospital to like raise the flags and like play music and like fold the flag in a certain way. I don't understand all the traditions, but oh, yeah. it's very ceremonial, very honoring of this patient, the life they've lived and then the life they're about to impact it. It really is very beautiful. Oh yeah. So Sean, as we are closing, 
Can you just give another little bit of wisdom, like as a patient advocate, anything that you think we should know or do with regards to caring for patients who might be organ donors or who have already been decided that they're going to be organ donors? Like anything that you want us to know from what you've experienced? Yeah, I think the main thing is, is being able to recognize potential, you know, donors and potential referrals. Also knowing the triggers to call in that referral is really the thing that I just have to kind of really stamp into this. (laughs) Yeah, because that's where it starts, right? Yeah, and it's it's also important, the timing of that referral, because a lot of hospitals will say, you know, make sure you call before withdrawing care and stuff like that. But why not a couple days before that when it looks like the patient has taken a turn? You know, this not just because you call doesn't mean everything's going to start right at that point. You know, it might be that the OPO is just in the back end and, you know, just calling for an update every day, seeing what's going on. And that's better than coming in last minute, having to rush through a conversation with family and then not having that opportunity to actually do donation because of the late referral. If the nurse doesn't do that, right, then there's no chance someone's going to get that piece of yeah. the organ. So it, it begins with the nurse recognizing those triggers and speaking up and saying something. And when you do that, you're advocating not only for the patient and what their wishes are, but for future patients are going to receive their organs. So it's, it's a really important step in the process. Thank you, Sean. Before I let you go, can you tell my listeners where to find you? Oh, yeah. So you can look for my podcast basically anywhere where podcasts are. It's a Nurse Dose podcast and you can just find me on TikTok and Nurse Dose podcast as well as my Instagram's the same, the same thing. And I have a website. It is nursedose.org. And what kind of stuff will they find if they go to your website? I've actually been focusing on doing a lot of cheat sheets and resources um, for ICU nurses, uh, especially that's uh, tailored towards uh, CCRN preparation and uh, CBICU devices such as impellas, balloon pumps, and uh, external pacemakers. So something that I've really poured my heart and soul into because it's something that I wish I had, you know, whenever I started in the CBICU. So yeah, that and, um, you know, my podcast's all about critical care, especially for new grads. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sean. All those links to his podcast, to his social, to his website, I'll have in the show notes too, so you don't have to go searching for him. You can find Sean easily. Sean, thank you again for your time today and for the important work that you're doing in nursing. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com 
or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.